Everybody knows the song, The Wheels on the Bus. My kids love it. Love that song. We've created a couple extra verses for it. One for each of the kids. Uh, Only one matters for us, and it's Theo's verse. It says, uh, the Theo's on the bus say, why, why, why? Why, 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 why? If you've been around my son, you know that he likes to ask why a lot. He, when he's told, I love you, is likely to look at you and go, Daddy, why do you love me? Well, now that's, that's harder to answer than you'd think. You know, my answer to him is often, Son, I, I love you because God put a love in my heart for you because God loves you. And so he put that in me so that you would know that I love you and so that you would know that God loves you. Sometimes it gets annoying when he asks why about everything. But why is an important question. It's important for him to know why he's loved. It's important for him to know why he's even here on this earth. And it's important for you to know why God has called you, if he has called you. What are his purposes? You know, our sermon this morning is is called, Called into His Service. And it comes straight out of the text. I I didn't make this up, right? He says, uh, Beginning in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He's called us into his service. Why has he called you into his service? Christian, why has he called you and set you apart from the world? Why has he saved your soul? I promise you there's not just one reason, okay? There's not three reasons, but we're going to find three reasons. The one thing, if you take nothing else away from today, take this. He has called you for a purpose. You are not called to sit in a pew. You are not called to be couch potato Christians. You may feel I'm not worthy. You may feel I'm not likely. You might feel I'm not a Paul. I'm not a Timothy. I'm not even an Andrew, as pathetic as he is. The fact is God works through the unlikely. And that's one thing we're going to see today. Paul was an unlikely candidate to receive God's grace. He was an unlikely candidate to be a recipient of, of Christ's great mercy. And Timothy was sure an unlikely candidate to be a general in God's war against false doctrine. So let's get at it. Three points this morning. The first one is this. We are appointed to display his grace. We're appointed to display his grace. Scripture says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. We'll stop right there. The first thing we see is about God displaying his grace in us is he gives us strength. This strength is not our own, and we don't receive any credit for it. If you have ever done anything in Jesus Christ, it is not your doing. It is his spirit who works in you to will and to do. We know this from Philippians. It is his great power to save and to do mighty works. We know this from Romans. It is his very power that you would do anything, and his strength we see here in 1 Timothy. Not our own. We receive no credit the strength to accomplish his will. It's the strength to do his works. But there's a, there's a, a backside to this. If we are accomplishing what we consider to be his works, 
in our own strength, then we aren't doing his works. See, God wants all the glory for everything he's doing. He wants Jesus Christ to be lifted up for everything that is accomplished in the church and in the Christian life. We begin our life, our spiritual life, in the Spirit. Paul speaks in Galatians and says, Having begun in the Spirit, will you now continue in the flesh? Brothers and sisters, it's all of Jesus Christ. He is our one strength. That has a lot of implications for us in our personal life. We don't become better or greater Christians through trying harder, through keeping the law by being nicer. I'm going to go greet 25 people. I'm going to make sure that I knock on 50 doors this week, and I'm going to try to get 30 people to come to church. That does nothing. That would be our own works. But through prayer, through reading the scripture, through the the means of his grace flowing into us, he will grow us and he will make us stronger Christians. And then those other works may flow out of it and he may bless them. Another thing about him displaying his grace is faithfulness. See, Paul says that he was judged faithful, but that's not because Paul was faithful. It's because God is faithful. Paul was anything but faithful. He was an opponent of God, an insolent opponent, a blasphemer, an enemy of Christ. This faithfulness is not our own. If you attend church every week, you get no credit for it. When I was a kid uh, in elementary school, if you made it, you went to library once a week. And if you made it every week, you got this stamp. At the end of the year, if you had not missed any library time, you got a special treat. Because, boy, they wanted you to be there. And there was another bonus if you returned your book each week. You checked one out and you returned it every week because they're trying to encourage reading and all that kind of stuff. So if you were faithful in your own works and effort, you got a reward. You don't get this in Christ. Your faithfulness, if you are faithful, is because of him. And then you will receive a crown because of what Christ did and because of what was done in Christ. Not because of your own intent and your own purposes and your own efforts. That gets you nothing. Your righteousness, your strength, your faithfulness, your efforts, if it's yours, it's filthy rags. It's worthless to God. It is all about Christ. Another thing we see here is that Paul, this grace that Paul received was completely undeserved. If ever there was somebody who didn't seem like they were, could possibly be saved... It was Paul. Look at what he says. He says that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent. He was in unbelief. Have you ever seen somebody you thought, ain't no way. Ain't no way God's saving them. God saved Paul. God saved the man who stood there and said, give me your cloaks, boys. Pick up your rocks and stone Stephen while Stephen saw the heavens open and Jesus Christ not sitting at the right hand of God, but standing to welcome him to the kingdom. Paul, who went with letters and brought people with him so that he could go grab Christians wherever they were to put them to death. God saved him. There is no one that God cannot save. There's no one that the heart of God does not want to save. But it's completely undeserved. 
Let me tell you this. God did not save Paul because he knew that Paul would go on and he would be the, the apostle to the Gentiles and he would do these missionary journeys and he'd write all these. God could have used anyone, brothers and sisters. God could have put that spirit and that work in anyone. God did not choose Paul because of Paul's worthiness or what he knew Paul would do. Paul only did that because God saved him. If God did not work, Paul would do nothing for the kingdom. Paul would have no glory, no strength, no faithfulness. There would be no letters. There would be no anything. God moves in the unlikely. God actually did all this through Paul to prove his grace. Is there anyone you think can't be saved? Is it you? Do any of you feel like, I can't be saved? I've gone too far. I've done too much. The answer is, God saved Paul to prove that anyone can be saved. Finally, we see here that, that this faith is, is a gift of God. It's a complete gift. It's undeserved. Faith is the, the bucket that holds the outpouring of God's grace. Where am I coming from with this, okay? It says here, uh, and the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the grace of our Lord, go back, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace, undeserved, unmerited favor of God comes flowing forth from heaven all the time. Some people receive it, some people don't. What's the difference? The difference is faith. Faith is a gift. It's the bucket. It's the cup. It's the pail that receives the grace of God. But God has to give you that faith. We receive no credit for it ourselves. Even if we are faithless, brothers and sisters, once you have your cup, even if you're faithless from that point, he is still faithful. He cannot deny himself. And it's not the quantity and it's not the quality of our faith that matters. Nothing can stop him from pouring out his grace. We read earlier Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 10. I'm going to read it now because it shines a lot of light on our passage. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, us, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You may not boast about your faith. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have saving faith, you get no credit. God did that. God gave that to you. It is all about him being glorified. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He put those things in your heart and he had those plans for your life, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith is a gift of God, brothers and sisters. And if you have it, praise God for it. And if you find in your life that you are not receiving his grace, then you ask him. You ask him, it may be the first time. 
you ask him to save your soul. God, I've not put my trust in you. I don't have this faith. I hear about it every week. He keeps talking about it, but I don't know it. I don't experience it. Will you give it to me? And Christian, if you have this cup, it seems empty. It seems like God's never doing anything in your life. Hold it up and ask God to fill it with his grace. It's called faith for a reason. You must put your trust, your hope, your everything in it on the reliance of God that he would pour out from heaven, that he would save you, that he would work through your life, that he would save your loved ones, that he would save his church. He is mighty to save and he is faithful to answer prayers. Even when we're faithless. Finally, love is a gift of God. It's that last verse again. It says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The grace overflowed, Paul received faith and he received Christ's love. See, God loved you before you were saved. God loves the whole world, right? We know this, yes? It's the love of God that compelled him to send his, Jesus, his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, that whoever would believe in him would be saved. God loves the whole world. But God loves his son in a very particular way. He is pleased. He is fully satisfied with his son. When, when Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist, the, the spirit descended and the voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Christian, look at that. It says, love that are what? In Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, it is that love that you received. It is the love that is well-pleased. It is the love that gives his son an inheritance. It is the love that sets his son above all things. It's the love that would make you and I co-heirs with Jesus Christ. As the Bible tells us multiple places. You receive the love that God has for Christ because that is what God sees when he sees you. If you're in Christ, he sees Christ. He doesn't look at your sin. They're washed by the blood of the Lamb. And so there's complete satisfaction and complete devotion, but it is only found in the Messiah. Our second point this morning is that we are appointed to display His mercy. So why has He called you out of the world? Why has He set you in His kingdom? The first one was to display His grace. The second is to display His mercy. Beginning in verse 15, his word says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You and I are also appointed to display God's mercy. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then he goes on to say, of whom I am the foremost. This is a common doctrinal mantra. This is something that they would repeat because it's true. They would likely turn to each other and say, 
Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. They might say it, it might be a responsive thing. The, the preacher might say, and the congregation responds. And what a great thing that is to remember. Because that keeps you from works-based righteousness. It keeps your heart and your thoughts and your affections on your Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that from context here that false teachers were teaching the law, right? I mean, that was last week's sermon. We know that the, the law, is law is lawful if it's used lawfully. It, it has good purpose, but they were not doing that. So what is this statement? Why is Paul saying this? Because if you are practicing works-based righteousness, if you are trying to keep the law, then you're trying to not need Jesus. Jesus might as well not have come and saved sinners because you're going to save yourself. And so Paul is refuting what's happening among these false teachers with one of the true statements, the foundations of the church. He goes on to say about the sinners who Christ came to save, that he is the foremost. If you were, were raised on the KJV, then you know it says that he is the chief of sinners. There is none greater, none higher than himself. When Paul looked at himself, he couldn't imagine a worse sinner. He's reflecting on how unlikely it was that God would give him mercy. He's the greatest sinner he knew. Brothers and sisters, are you the greatest sinner you know? Are you the greatest sinner you know? We should all be able to amen what Paul says. I am the chief of sinners. If you've examined your own life honestly, then you are. No one's sin should trouble you as much as your own. If you, if you look at what others are doing and it just bothers you, and I don't even mean people in the church, I mean people in the world. If their sin, if what you see when you look at them troubles you so greatly, troubles you more than your own sin, that's a problem. And we need to ask God to give us repentance. We need to have what Paul had, this humility to see the great grace, exactly how unlikely we were to be saved. Verses like this are a great opportunity to reflect on what Christ has done for us and to glorify him and to lift him up. Because, brothers and sisters, there's nobody else who could give you that mercy. There's no one else who could say, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. No one. Jesus wanted to display his complete patience through saving Paul. That's part of this mercy. But I receive mercy, this is verse 16, for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Complete patience being demonstrated through Paul. It means at least two things. It means that saving someone about saving somebody as unlikely as Paul at all. And it's saving Paul so late into his career as a persecutor of the church. So it's not just that Paul was an opponent of the gospel. It's not just that Paul had people killed. 
that he was a blasphemer, that he said horrible things about Jesus Christ. He did it for so long. I mean, he had a Hall of Fame career for persecuting the church. You think about the worst of the Roman emperors. What did they have on Paul? I mean, Paul's tried to snuff it out before it even got started. On the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ blinds him and he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus Christ. The idea of perfect patience is that absolutely every little bit of patience. God could not have been more patient with Paul. Here's what I'm saying. God let it go on, all of Paul's persecution, for a reason, right? The death of those martyrs, you know, the expression is that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? When, when, when the church is under persecution, when people die for the gospel, God moves. So God used it in that way. But God let it go on so long. Think about it. He could have saved Paul. Paul could have been one of the twelve. Just as easily as anything, couldn't he? He could have got saved almost right away like Nicodemus did. Paul could have got saved right after Stephen was stoned. Paul could have got saved after just, you know, five or six deaths. No, Paul had a reign of terror on the church so that the church was spread. They had to flee from Jerusalem because Paul was so good at killing Christians. And God let it go so long to show the extent of his mercy. And so that Paul would know. Think about a man like Paul. Think about what he says to himself. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was you know, circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from this tribe. As to the law, I mean, I'm blameless. All these things, all this flesh. And God let it go so far so that Paul would know it is all my mercy. And Christian, God let it go so far so that you would know you're never too far to receive his mercy. There's never anything you've done that would make you unacceptable to him because it's not you. It's his mercy. It's his grace. It's his love. You need to know that, little one. God loves you with a mighty love and no matter what, he will come and, and, and seek you and he loves you. And Christians, if if in your life, you feel like, I was saved, but look at what I've done. Look at what a train wreck I've made of my faith. No, no, you're not too far from his mercy. Amen. Jesus wanted to show an example that we're never too far gone. And you know what this does for Paul when he thinks about And it should do the same for us. You know, right now, hopefully you're... I don't want to say you're just itching for me to be done, but hopefully part of you, hopefully part of you can't wait so that we can praise God. That's how Paul feels right here. Look at what he says. Instantly after thinking about the grace and the mercy that he's received, he says to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a doxology. It's a praise of God. He speaks of God's attributes. He speaks of God's worthiness. And then he gives his own amen to it. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You are the king of the ages. You are immortal. No beginning, no end. You're invisible. We can't see you, but you are so real. 
You are the only God. And I might not even understand you, but you're here in your word. And you get all honor and all glory forever. It's not of me. It's all of Christ. Amen. Finally, we're going to see that we're appointed to war. And we see this in the life of Timothy. He says here, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. If you have checked out on me, do not. Get back in, okay? Be right here right now. This is so important. Timothy was appointed to war. Brothers and sisters, you are called, you are appointed to war. The charge here, we've seen this idea of charge in last week's sermon. It's the charge to have false teachers shut their mouths. Shut them down, Timothy. Don't let them talk. Don't let them destroy the church. Don't let them lead people astray. You, Timothy, are going to be a general in God's army waging war against false doctrine. That's what the charge is about. That's also what the prophecies are about that he's referencing here. He's got this charge from Paul and he's received prophecies throughout his life. See, people are called into ministry. God has to move in their lives to reveal to them that they're called into ministry and the church has to affirm that. But Timothy has a calling unlike any other. Specifically being prophesied about and not just that you'd go be a, a gospel witness and you'd proclaim the, the word of the Lord, but that you would go fight. You, Timothy, are going to be a general. So why does he need multiple charges, multiple prophecies of assurance? Because Timothy is extremely unlikely. You would not... Look, let me just tell you this. When you're, when you're in grade school and they line everybody up and they pick teams for dodgeball or kickball, Timothy's the last kid picked every time, guarantee you. If you're going to form an army to go battle... Against false doctrine, Timothy's your last pick, I guarantee you. He is the most unlikely candidate possible. He's timid. He's very young. He has a queasy stomach. He's insecure. Not the one you're going to go, Timothy, you go confront false doctrine. He's as unlikely a fighter for the faith as Paul was a candidate to be saved. Guess what, brothers and sisters? In our weakness, in our last kid picked... Christ's power is made perfect. Not in our strength, in our weakness. That's why God always, always exalts the humble. Always picks the least likely. It's why when, when, when Samuel was sent to Jesse to pick one of his sons to be king, God said, no, 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 no. Is there anyone left? Yeah, I mean, there's David out with the, the sheep. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. It's why the second born was given the blessing and not the first. It's why, it's why Israel and not Esau. It's why Jesus was lowly and humble and had no appearance that we should look upon him. It's why he came as a servant and, and, and not as a triumphant king. And it's why Timothy and brothers and sisters, it's why you. It's why you. You may feel unequipped, unworthy, unlikely to speak up, 
To, when somebody talks about, about how to be saved and it's wrong, you may feel completely unequipped. Good. In your weakness, Christ's power is made perfect. And he promises he will give you the words to speak. And he promises, I will be with you. Lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. He doesn't say that because you're great. He says that because you're not. Because he is. We're pointed to war. And how do we wage war? We're told. We're told to do two things. To hold tight to faith and a good conscience. Hold tight to faith and a good conscience. It's this Greek word echo. It means to seize, to hold, to not let go of. In one hand, faith. In the other hand, a good conscience. Faith is what we believe. It's what we believe about his words, what we believe about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Conscience comes from living out our faith in obedience. So if you believe but you continue to sin, you don't have a good conscience. If you know what right doctrine is, but then you profess something different, you don't have a good conscience. You will be troubled. And you know what a, a troubled conscience does to a soldier, to a warrior in God's army? It's like having trench foot. You're disabled. You're hobbled. That's got to be healed up before you're going to be ready to march, before you're going to be ready to do anything. So if there is unrepentant sin in your life, Christian, deal with it. Because you are not fit to fight while there are planks in your eye. Troubled conscience is like a case of trench foot. It will keep you out of the fight. These two things... Faith and a good conscience, they are hand and hand. They are the two weapons of warfare against false doctrine. Nothing else. You don't need anything else. You don't need seminary degrees. You don't need a, a group of people to back you up. You need to know what you believe about his word. And you need a life that's going to show that it's made a difference. When that combination of right believing and right living are tossed aside, the whole thing will be lost. If you let go of either one, it's lost, not only in your war, but even in life. Check this out. He says here, <clears throat> by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. This word reject is not my favorite translation. And I definitely don't like the of their faith. If I were to translate it going straight from the Greek, I would say, by casting these overboard, some have made shipwreck of the faith. He's using nautical terms here. But when you, when you change that out, you miss a little bit of the illusion. Okay, there's something about a shipwreck. But when you say casting overboard, now we know, oh, we're on a ship. He's giving us a metaphor here. So what are we trying to say? Well, when does a captain cast the cargo overboard? When does he cast the ballast in the bottom of the ship overboard? When he's nervous about it sinking. When the storms are great and the waves are coming and the wind is coming and he doesn't see how he's going to make it safely to shore, he will cast some of that off so that hopefully he can be lighter and faster and make it to safe harbor. What's Paul saying? He's saying they cast it off the faith and the good conscience, thinking that they were going to save the ship. But they didn't save the ship. They shipwrecked the ship. They shipwrecked the faith. Think about this. He's talking about false teachers. 
He's talking about elders in the Ephesian church. He's saying these men have not held on to the true faith and they've not held on to a good conscience. They're not living out the true faith. And they thought that by doing this, they could save the church. But it's had the opposite effect. It's destroyed it. They've destroyed the faith. Not only their own personally, but also for all who follow after them. And it's damaged the church irreparably. You, Timothy, don't do that. Hold on to them fast. People still do this today. They still let go of the true faith and of right living. They say things like, we must allow women preachers. We don't want to lose the church. We don't want people not to come. We don't want women to feel like like they're being oppressed. We must allow women preachers. We must allow homosexuals into the church. We can't preach on sin. You can't do that. They won't come. You certainly can't preach on hell. Nobody wants to leave church feeling bad. They won't come. We've got to save the ship. You can't do church discipline. People won't come back. You can't do biblical worship. You've got to sing what they want to hear, and you need the lights. And you've got to do what the other churches are doing, or they won't come. The irony is that by trying in their own wisdom to save the ship, they shipwreck the faith. And so we have churches that are buildings and they're hollow shells filled with people who are whitewashed tombs. They look like they're worshiping, but they're not worshiping the true God. And people are, are not necessarily getting actually saved. And if they are getting saved, what are they getting saved into? If we don't ever address sin. How are people going to know how to live? And God's not going to honor that. And so that ship remains on the rocks. Brothers and sisters, the ship is not meant for the rocks. It's meant to sail the seas, to bring the gospel to everyone. The notion of the churches casting aside the precious cargo of the good news of Jesus Christ of right faith, right doctrine, right living. It's not, it's happening there in Ephesus, but it didn't go away. One of the greatest examples we saw was in the late 18th, early 19th century, or late 19th, early 20th centuries. When modernism had made its way into all of society and everything was supposed to be testable by science. And science says there are no miracles. So if the Bible says there's a miracle, the Bible must be wrong. The Bible says no one can come back from the dead. So if some, the Bible says, or excuse me, the world says that no one can come back from the dead. So if the Bible says that Jesus was raised from the dead, then the Bible must be wrong. And so men started preaching a false gospel to accommodate the world. They jettisoned, they overthrew the treasure, Jesus Christ, who was on board. They kicked him off the ship to try to save the ship. The ship is not a value. Christ is a value. And Christ will save the ship. He will save the church. We don't compromise. We don't need to change things. And it didn't go away. Men, men fought against it. Praise the Lord. You know, we get the idea of, of the term fundamentalism in a response to Christian liberalism. A teaching that Jesus isn't really Savior. Jesus didn't really die. Jesus didn't really do miracles. And so we got the idea of, of fundamentalism. 
And then in the 80s, we saw that, that, that the liberalism hadn't actually gone away, and it just festered, and it festered within the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention that, that we belong to, the national figurehead. You went to any of those seminaries, they were as liberal as get out. They did not teach that Jesus Christ was a miracle worker. They did not teach that the Bible was true. And so you had the... the uh, um, the resurgence of fundamentalism in the 80s under men like Adrian Rogers, who basically took over, praise God, the Southern Baptist Convention. And they kicked out the men who were leading these, ceremony, these, these seminaries. And they brought back in the gospel truth. Okay. But it still didn't go away. And it didn't go away in Texas. It is our own state convention. Our own. You know, there are two in the state of Texas. The one, the general Baptist that we belong to, they've thrown away faith and a good conscience to try to save the ship. Every year they go further and further away from the teachings of the SBC. They teach that the Bible is not fully trustworthy. They teach things like we can't actually do what the Bible says. They say that, that the SBC, the flagship of it all, the cover over all of it, they say that the SBC oppresses women. And how do they say they do this? Because the SBC says what the Bible says. Well, if the Bible says that women are oppressed, then how can we trust the Bible? And there are men leading our state convention who hold that the Bible is in error, that we don't know for sure that Paul wrote this book. We don't know for sure that Isaiah wrote all of Isaiah. There are men and women in our convention who lead it, who don't believe in hell. They don't believe in demons. And this lack of truth plays out into their living, how they live out their lives. If you go to the website and you look up abortion, they're going to say, yeah, we stand against abortion, except in certain cases, incest, rape, etc. That's a statement that's voted on by the, by, by the assembly. But if you go to what's actually practiced, they have a statement that makes, makes so many allowances for abortion that it's ridiculous. It's reasonable to have a, an abortion if that child will be an undue burden because you're, you're mentally distressed. Your emotional well-being is, is at risk. If your life is at risk, if it's not good for the overall health of your family, if it's going to be a burden on the father or... Just kill the baby for almost anything. That is a lack of a pure conscience that comes because they've cast aside faith. And now, within our own convention, our own Texas convention, I hope not the national convention, they're bringing in Marxism. They're bringing in in the form of critical race theory, which you might have heard a little bit about, but you're going to hear a whole lot more coming up. They bring it in through Black Lives Matter. If you go to their website, you will see multiple articles affirming Black Lives Matter and why you need to understand it and why you need to accept it and why you need to amen it. Brothers and sisters, Black Lives Matter says that the grace of God does not apply. 
God didn't pay for these sins. Christ didn't pay for these sins. You must atone for them. Black Lives Matter is anti-God. Black Lives Matter is anti-family. They make that statement. If you go to their webpage, it says, we seek to destroy the white, they put everything on white folks, notion of the family. God made the family. Our convention is supporting a movement that seeks to undermine and destroy the word and the work of God. Even our little church We'll soon have to decide whether we're going to keep the treasure on board or cast it over. Because those who we align with are casting it over. And battle lines are being drawn. David and I have an opportunity to go to the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, We have a special business meeting next week because we have to be duly elected. So that's got to all be done right. So hopefully you're going to go, yes, we want to send those to to the Southern Baptist Convention. Because this thinking, this Black Lives Matter thinking, this critical race theory thinking is here. It's in the National Convention, not only in the General Convention of Texas. And there will be two candidates. And one of them is going to be pro-critical race theory and Black Lives Matter. And one of them is going to be pro-the Bible. That this is sufficient. And which one is elected is going to determine the course of Baptist life in this country for decades. And so we want to go and we want to stand up for the things of God. It is very much like the day when Adrian Rogers was elected as president of the SBC. And that ship, Jesus was put back on it. And it went in the right direction. Final thing, I know I've gone over. I know that. I apologize for that. I hope you feel it was worth it. What do we do with false teachers? We remove them from the church. It's that simple. Look at what he says. He said, among whom, these are the men who have cast aside the faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. And if it ended right there, it would sound like punishment. Kick them out of the church. Get rid of them. Send them to hell. He doesn't say that. Well, you hand them over to Satan. That's what it sounds like, right? Look at what he says. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. What's he saying? That they might repent. That they might have an understanding of the truth and might turn around and be restored. That is the purpose of church discipline, brothers and sisters. Not to punish someone because we love them so much we know they're walking in a way away from God. And they need to repent and come back. We pray that God would give them mercy. We're called for a purpose. We're called to display his grace and we're called to display his mercy and we're unlikely. Every one of us is unlikely. If you talk to my mom much about the child she raised, you go, I can't believe God saved him. That boy was a liar and he was a thief and he was arrogant. But God has called us to wage war against false doctrine, each and every one of us. We might not be the general who walks into a place like Ephesus and sets everything straight. We might be the foot soldier who contends for the gospel with our children and our grandchildren or our husbands and our wives. Let's go to the Lord.